After a tumultuous month of March, online apparel sales around the world are back on the rise. Meanwhile, Google Shopping became more accessible last week after the company made it free for merchants to sell on its e-commerce platform. And this just in, curbside pickup surged 208% last month. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, May 4th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by guests Elon Tito and George Minakakis. Elon is a partner at Chameleon Collective, where he specializes in e-commerce and merchandising. George is the CEO of Inception Retail Group, where he works with private equity firms on portfolio companies in the consumer space. Both guests today have significant direct experience in executive roles for large retail companies, and I'd like to thank you for joining today. Good to be here. Good to be here. Great. So the first bit of news we'll talk about is Google's announcements. So recently, to help merchants better connect with consumers, Google has made it free to sell on its shopping platform. This is huge news. It launched last week, and search results on the Google Shopping tab will now consist primarily of free listings, regardless of whether the merchant advertises on Google or not. Google Shopping also kicked off a new partnership with PayPal to allow merchants to link their accounts, which will speed up the onboarding process and allow merchants to start selling sooner. Alon, I wanted to pass this to you first. How will access to a free selling platform help small to mid-sized businesses during this pandemic and beyond? Or will it not? Do you think there'll be quick adoption? I do think there'll be adoption. So I think what essentially Google is doing is trying to eliminate all friction from the onboarding process for new merchants of so people that haven't tried it in the past. So if they have a PayPal account, they can easily get on that way. They can sync up their inventory and manage it through um, Shopify. And I believe they have other e-com platform partners as well. And making it free is, of course, uh, greasing it even further. And so they want to get as many as they can um, onto their platform. They want the data to be as up-to-date as possible in terms of product information and inventory. And from a merchant standpoint, it's interesting because the listings are not all um, unpaid, so they're still going to be promoted products in here. And mm-hmm. so presumably, of course, those, you know, those are going to be front and center. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what organic really does and how it performs in this context. And as a particularly a small business, and now given the time we're currently in, it could be interesting to test things out. You know, there's no cost, very little barrier now. So see how products do, um, see what the ROI potential could be, and then put some advertising money behind that to promote it. So I think that could be an interesting way to move on it now that kind of other barriers have been lowered. But ultimately, this still is an advertising play for Google. And then there are kind of other ramifications from a competitive standpoint. But really, as far as the small to medium-sized business owner, it's an opportunity to get on and and learn. George, do you agree it's a bit of an advertising play for Google? Definitely. You know, I think when you look at the whole category of being online, COVID-19 has opened up a door, tragically Mm -hmm. opened up a door. And a lot of retailers out there shuttered. Some of them, you know, are going to need a lot of help, and this is a great opportunity for them. I'll have to be quite blunt about these sort of things. Not every business is going to survive. Not everybody may try it, but the survival rate today is questionable for a lot of retailers, small and mid-sized, as they come out of this. But at the end of the day, yes, Google definitely, this is a great play for them. I mean, 
Amazon has been dominating for some time. It's a different venue. You know, I, I really question Amazon for on a lot of levels. When you look at the consumers and their reactions to online shopping, integrity of a seller has always been in question. So Amazon's always been criticized for that as of late. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's an opportunity. If Google's serious about this, other than just the advertising, it's what are you going to do to improve all of that? Elon was talking about you know, frictionless for the retailers or sellers. Well, it has to be frictionless for the consumer as well. And that trust factor, it's so important today because you got a lot of trial happening right mm-hmm. now, right? I saw some stats that suggested the U.S. is currently at 15% e-commerce. It can go to 25, maybe 30. Well, that's doubling down on that pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So clearly it's a great capture a great entry for Google to capture part of that because not everybody's going to jump into Amazon. I think I saw something that Amazon gets about 50 to 60% of the initial searches. Well, that leaves right. a lot of low-hanging fruit for Google. And being a search engine, a powerful search engine, I think that they've got a good opportunity. But let's see how good they become at this. I think that's a great point, but will it be enough? Uh, You said the competitive advantage could be creating that trust for customers that Amazon has missed out on a little bit. Is there any other competitive advantage you can think of aside from the fact Google has been around much longer? There is, and it has to come from the seller, right? The retailer themselves. How good are you going to be in, in supply? If you do some searches on Amazon, I think Elon would admit some of them, you know, you could be three, four, six weeks before you see a delivery of something. Well, I think that somehow you need to clean that up. If you're just throwing product out there, you're ordering it from China or somewhere else, if you get the order it return, and, you, and you get it and then you ship it out, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't create a lot of trust. And what drives this is convenience and speed and the accuracy of the order, right? All of those things is that something that Google is going to have to get right with their merchants. I'm not sure what standards they'll have in place, but someone's got to put standards in place to this if you want to win in the end. If you're in a Google and, and Amazon are going to compete against each other, and if that, I'm sure that's what Google wants, um, you need right. to be a better player. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so from a competitive standpoint, to me, this is like a direct frontal assault on Amazon. The tying of this is very, very deliberate. So Google has a very long history in product search going back, I think, 20 years now with Frugal, I believe that was their first kind of uh, foray. And it started off free. And then they combine paid with it. And bottom line is consumers prefer organic results. So if you look at um, kind of Google's ecosystem, basically less than 10% of clicks are paid for. And I think around half of them are actually not clicked on half of the search results. And Kind of we've seen what Google has done with content. And, and I think the reason that penetration of no clicks is so high is because they brought all the content onto the search result page. And the traffic that used to go to the publishers and other pages, or other sites rather, they've kept. They have not been able to do that with commerce. And that's gone to Amazon. And that George's point of 50% plus or 50 to 60% of product searches starting on Amazon, Google lost that. They let Amazon really build that and take that away from them. And so they want it back. And this, I think, is their way to do it in a time right now where consumers are probably frustrated um, with Amazon or the most frustrated, say, they've ever been in in the last number of years. Um, Amazon shifted to really prioritizing essentials. They've shut out a lot of especially small businesses that have shipped 
non-essentials, um, mm-hmm. kind of uh, in quotes. And so you can't even get a lot of that or it's very long lead times. So they're capitalizing on that built up frustration, trying to regain market share effectively that they've lost. And that was a good point you made about less than 10% of clicks being paid for. It seems like they're missing out a little bit on some possible revenue. So we'll see if they recoup that. Do you think, Elon, that consumer intent, they'll start their purchase on Google versus Amazon? Or is that something that will take years to get people to switch? I don't think it would take years. But I think and also I think to George's point in terms of tools and uh, the experience, they've got to make it a uh, better for the consumer in, in terms of the, the shopping experience. Part of that is inventory in the catalog that's more relevant. So maybe more of a long tail, more about discovery, more interesting things, and then capitalizing on what Amazon is not good at. And Amazon's got a huge amount of strengths, but they're not going to always get over 50% market share. That's just not sustainable. So I think this is starting to chip away at, at that. But Google is certainly able to really focus on the consumer need. And we'll see if this is kind of the first wave in that respect. But I think if they do, I think consumers could shift very quickly. Yeah, you're right. Google has the biggest opportunity they have is to become that one-stop shopping solution, right? So if they can pull that off and convince the public that does the searches that that's a great place to be, they've got a good shot at it. But it's going to take a lot of innovation and adapting to the merchants and to the people who are shopping. Because, you know, right now I, I see that the public, like I said earlier, they're experimenting. Right? Anyone who has never shopped before online is trialing it right now. And that experience is going to determine what happens next. But once they're back out and shopping a little more with a little more ease and comfort, if Google's done a good job up front and retain uh, customer base, then you get traction. But without that opportunity being investing in time and innovation right now, you could lose that opportunity. So it's Google's mm-hmm. to lose right now. You know, Amazon will be Amazon, but it's a good opportunity for Google not to tap away just from Amazon, but from others also. And perhaps create more visibility for the sellers around the data. Do you think that they'll compete directly with Amazon there since that's been an issue for them? Yeah, you know what? It's it's a good question. You know, the other question I have to add to that one is how many of these sellers will be both on Amazon and on Google, Mm -hmm. right? Playing both sides. Right. Why not? Right. So I don't know what that number is going to look like, but I anticipate. But then does Google start to favor and does Amazon start to favor those that only participate and and are loyal to one outlet or one online platform versus uh, multiple? That could change things too. There are also new platforms that are starting to come into the mix, which are also going to be um, a threat to Amazon and and potentially Google. But Instagram going the social network, trying to get into shopping directly. Shopify just announcing that app, which they formerly used for order tracking, is now shifting into multi-brand commerce. And essentially, it's checkout for all Shopify sites. So I think there are a lot of aggregation plays. And we're going to see more more and more of that in this time period. Mm -hmm. Aggregation plays, more consolidation, maybe. And it's interesting because I just have one last question I wanted to throw out there. Because when we hear about marketplaces, the top three, it's Amazon, Tmall, um, Taobao, they're accounting for two thirds of the $2 trillion GMV. But there's other marketplaces out there. Do they stand a chance now, especially now that Google's entering the market here? You know what? Competition is healthy, right? (laughs) It's always healthy. And there's always a winner and a loser in this. So I think time will tell. Again, it comes back to how do they innovate further? 
how do they adapt to the broader competition, right? Look, Google's a big dog. You know, they're coming into the play and they're not coming in small. And they're not starting fresh. So you don't have, it's not like you don't have to worry about them. So now they got another big dog on the street that they need to compete against. So yeah, it's, there's, you know, in my view is there will be fallout. Question is who, and you know, whoever doesn't have enough deep enough pockets to invest in innovation and grow to and adapt. I think that's where the failures rate start. I agree, but I think there's definitely room for opportunity, especially in niche plays. And we're seeing a lot of success there. Like, look at the sneaker market. Look at uh, used clothes or vintage or whatever term you want to use to describe it. But um, those sites are really doing well now. And kind of they have been and it's accelerated now. So I think if you really target, if you have a value proposition and you're focused on really serving a consumer with that value proposition, there's always opportunity for them. Before we dive into our next segment, let's hear some good news. The world's largest toy maker Hasbro reported a first quarter increase of 25% for retail sales of its games like Monopoly, Operation, Connect Four, and Jenga. U.S. supermarket chain Publix launched a new program to purchase fresh produce and milk from farmers impacted by COVID-19. It's also donating fresh fruits, vegetables, and dairy products directly to Feeding America food banks. Sportswear powerhouse Adidas is donating $3.6 million to the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, and in the U.S., it's offering a 200% match for employee donations. They also partnered with Carbon, the same company that helps produce its 3D-printed sneakers, to print 18,000 face shields each week for healthcare workers and first responders. Meanwhile, Adidas competitor Under Armour is also doing good, manufacturing and assembling face masks, and delivering face shields and specially equipped fanny packs for its home state of Maryland's medical system. According to various sources, people bought more loungewear in April, with online demand up 322% in the UK and activewear sell-throughs up 40% in the US. Other hot sellers include bathrobes, CBD gummies, baking supplies, and bicycles, to name a few. So after a rough month of March, the online sales of apparel in North America and Europe are getting back on track. Online fashion sales in the U.S. fell 30% year over year during the month of March, largely due to the COVID-19 pandemic, or according to a report by Nosto. Fortunately, though, the U.S. saw an increase of 24% for its April 2020 online fashion sales. When we look at the UK, they had an increase of 34% in the month of April, and France saw an increase of 57%. Germany is also seeing some of the highest increases in year-over-year visits, sales, and conversion rates, but also has the biggest decrease in average order value. Sweden is seeing decreases across the board, unfortunately, with conversion rates and AOV sliding in the month of April. So to round this out, just last week, the French prime minister said that non-essential merchants could open beginning May 11th, while smaller shops in Germany were granted permission to open May 4th. George, do you think year-over-year increases in online fashion sales are attributed more to these irresistible deals retailers are having right now? Or is it consumers settling into a new life at home? Well, I think it's a, maybe a little bit of both happening here, not just one. But they are settling in at home and adapting, right? So bringing my old world back to the present, you know, it takes about 30 to 60 days to shape new behaviors. So when you think about that, we've been, you know, depending on the country, here in Canada, I think we're at day 42 what I call isolation, right? So, and Europe has been longer. So 
with that, those shape behaviors very quickly. And if you can't go out, you're shopping online. And I hear a lot about how that's shifting. When more numbers become to come out, you'll see that online fashion has been growing as a result of the fact because those fashionistas out there, they want to buy their fashion, right? And so they're still buying it online, offline, they're going to do it. So you're seeing that. And the challenge going forward is can you hang on to that as retailers open, right? And I believe that the percentages that you're starting to see in e-coin e-commerce, I don't think they're going to erode that much because we're still going to be in an era here where people have to wear masks. They may be wearing gloves. They may be in queues, social distancing. Do you mind me saying so? I just did some research around a 2,000 square foot store and the dynamic of building out a store like that. You've got 70 to 80% of the square footage going to a back room, change rooms, display cases, uh, merchandising, and cash wrap. Well, that leaves you anything from 30 to 40% of the retail space to deal with customers. If you need two meters, in European metrics, two meters of distancing, that's two square meters. So that's a lot of space. That's 30, around 36, 40 square feet per person. Walking around with 40 square feet per person, you're running into each other in a, in a retail store environment that that's tight. If you're sensitive to that, e-commerce becomes even better for you. So you may go into a store to browse, you're not going to shop, and you're going to go back online and you're going to shop from there. That's how I see how this change happening. And what happened 10 years ago when we started with the term showrooming, mm-hmm. I think it's going to come back in full force here because consumers are not going to be comfortable knowing that retail space is tight. And I mean, larger retail spaces may give you more comfort, but e-commerce, I don't see that for fashion eroding anytime soon. Right. Elon, what do you think, especially to George's point, it takes 30 to 60 days to have um, new behaviors. Do you think these are sticky behaviors and we will see what George is saying, some more showrooming that will come back, things like that? You have to kind of aggregate what's going on in terms of the blip. I think it's a combination of a bunch of different things. First of all, for omnichannel retailers, it's offline sales moving online. And so you got to understand that what's really incremental versus just a, a shift in channel. Then I think there's genuine new demand for, call it more pandemic relevant categories. So whether it's stay at home, wellness, loungewear type stuff, that's definitely getting an increase. And that part is a good part temporary, um, maybe from a wellness standpoint and other things that there could be legs or longevity. And then there's all the discounting that's happening. And so discounting is that conditioned behavior. And so like discounting stops, the sales will stop. There's probably, unfortunately, going to be discounting that will be necessary for a long time with all the the excess inventory and shipments, which never really hit stores and Mm -hmm. and, and that. So it's going to be a good 12 to 18 months of kind of Black Friday every day, I think. (laughs) So I think the challenge is to tease all that apart and really understand what is new demand, what's incremental versus shifts and versus temporary. You know, some of it can certainly be longer term the overall penetration of e-com will increase and this will accelerate. It has been increasing. This is just going to be an accelerator. And the store experience will also be very different, I think, longer term, and there will need to be adaption in the 30 to 60 days. I think we're going to be continually doing that even when people are um, off of lockdown and going out. It's going to be a completely different shopping experience and that'll change and have to be adapted to both from the retail side and the customer standpoint. How does a retail 
brand that does both really well? How do they survive that discount world in a physical world where the cost is substantial to operate and you're dealing with less traffic? And you know, people don't go in shopping by themselves. They Sometimes it's a group of two or more. Now, how, how do you think that'll play out? It's really a challenge. And just looking at kind of how some, some brands and retailers have tackled it, some of them are literally holding their shipments to next year. Not many people could do that because especially fashion. So that's one way to tackle it. Don't sell. Temporarily remove the supply. But the reality is uh, that's not going to be feasible uh, from a number of standpoints for the vast majority. So I think you have to try to be as intelligent and isolated as possible about it. And you don't do it on a global level to everybody. You try to communicate super well about it. What is discount and the fact that this is now and what the reasons are for it. And you don't do it across the board. And maybe you do it in different ways. Um, brands have been doing this for a while with flash sales and mm-hmm. using some brands online as more of a discount channel. But I think you just have to really think about all your different outlets and, and what you do. And especially now as e-com penetration is growing, marketplaces are becoming more relevant, international marketplaces are becoming more relevant. I think it's just, it's taking a lot of time to be much more strategic uh, about it. But I think it's inevitable that it'll be here for a while. I want to add something to that too, is that we know that there are a number of retailers out there right now who are closed and they are planning bankruptcies, their own bankruptcy and restructuring. This is an opportunity for them to exit out of bad situations or overstoring. Whatever the outcome is for each of them, I do believe that much of that is going to play out in their favor by being able to move more volume to to e-commerce. That's a good point. Moving volume to e-commerce might be one of the the only options left for some retailers. Um, what do you think when it comes to luxury category is the only option for them to discount when traditionally they would rarely, if ever, offer discounted product? Because I have been there. I think luxury will slash their wrist before they discount. So. <laughs> <laughs> Look, when I lived in China, I'd go into the luxury stores and you know how the Chinese bought, everybody had a brand, favorite brand, everyone. For the most of them, it was a t-shirt. And they wore their brand. They did. But I think that what you'll see is that maybe they'll create some lines that are more favorable in price, but I don't see them discounting. I, I just, I think that would erode their brand and that would be going down the Pierre Cardin path. And I think that's suicide for them. What they'll have to do, they'll have to take their experience a little much higher and they'll have to take that e-commerce experience much higher. So mm-hmm. if you order something, what other goodies have been placed in the box when you receive it. It's going to be those element of surprises that get the luxury consumer excited. Wow. I haven't thought about that until you just said it. That's, yeah, that sounds like an interesting idea. It's going to have to take that path. I really believe that they'll be more successful giving something away versus giving money away. Mm. What do you think, Elon? Do you agree? Yeah, luxury will not, I mean, talking through luxury they're not going to come out discounting um, because of this. So it will, as George said, go into kind of how could the customer be delighted, serviced um, in a different manner. And this is also the big luxury groups have balance sheets and can withstand probably this for a while. Yeah, we won't see any Chanel bags at TJ Maxx, unfortunately. So <laughs> The real, real really will, man. So I wanted to switch over when we talk about 
being um, customer centric and offering great experiences on e-commerce, that's important, but we've also seen some interesting moves happen in store. So there was an announcement recently from Best Buy. They shift to curbside pickup model during March and April, and they just announced plans for allowing customers to schedule one-to-one in-store consultations in about 200 of its US stores. So the electronics retailer will assign an employee to shop with each customer while staying socially distanced, and Best Buy employees will wipe down any products the customer wants to try before escorting them to the register and later out of the store. I also want to mention that curbside pickup surged a whopping 208% between April 1st and April 20th compared to a year ago in the US. That's according to Adobe Analytics. And curbside pickup saw its best numbers during the 2019 holiday shopping season. Yet questions remained whether the trend would carry on into the off season. We've seen it has. So Elon, I'll pass this to you first. I've seen small local boutiques doing this where they offer the one-to-one consultation, but not a major retailer. So is Best Buy going to be able to scale this effectively, yes or no? I think they can. And I actually really like the model. Basically, what they've been turning more and more into a showroom to begin with. So they've been one of the very, very few on the electronics front that's actually been successful offline. So I think this, if done right, could really underscore their value proposition and really bring their expertise and product knowledge and service to bear. And they're effectively doubling down on it. That being said, they have to adjust their cost structure and staff appropriately, and probably also their assortment and how they think about their assortment. Because ultimately, from a scalability standpoint, what they could do in theory is you have lower priced items and a certain part of their assortment, which is only bought online or pick up in store. You can't make appointments to go see a CD, for example. And then everything else, like the higher ticket items or above a certain threshold, you make an appointment for and you get special personal service. I think that could be a really interesting model. Mm -hmm, To help offset the costs. I think beyond the cost mitigation, like there's definitely cost mitigation that needs to be done, but I think that's just opportunity. I I think that's just a, a more relevant model certainly for now and and coming out of the pandemic, but probably even for the last few years, it's a more relevant model than just a big box retailer. The the interesting part about this is that it hit the nail on the head is that, you know, Best Buy was the first to respond to showrooming and they did it very well. You know, when everybody else was scrambling, trying to figure it out, they responded and they just basically taking this to the next level. Now, in all fairness, having come from a very full service environment, this is personalized selling. And this costs you money and it takes a lot of time to go through this exercise. So you could be with a customer where in the past, somebody's walking by an aisle, you can just say, you direct them to where it is and you leave them alone but, and to shop. But now the, the idea is it's an appointment. You're going to take care of all their needs. You're going to ask a lot of questions about lifestyle and, and what they're looking for and what they need it for. And you're going to try and upsell them and add-ons. That's an exercise. And it's skill sets, as Elon said, you know, there's skill sets here that need to be developed. And I don't think right now, I'm scalable, yes, over time, but to develop those skill sets takes a lot of time. And uh, it could mean very different hiring practices as well. I'm not going to say it's car salesmen, uh, but you may have to hire from a luxury retailer or a premium retailer who does that a lot of personalized service to get that. But the bridging between e-commerce and the physical store It's a great way to do it, right? And hopefully a lot of other retailers will pick up on this 
and recognize that it's a great opportunity to grow your revenue over time. It's a matter of trust, right? Because I've used uh, Best Buy's home service where they've come <laughs> in and evaluated uh, things and, and it's great. They train each other. So two people show up and they train each other and one will train the other while they're doing the work here and trying to sell you on products and services. They're basically taking that model and extrapolating it into their stores. But I think the capital, you know, it's an investment and you have to do a lot more selling with each customer to, because if that's your model, you need to do a lot more selling with each transaction in order to make it pay out. So we'll see how they make that work. Mm -hmm. Is it sticky? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think if you do it well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much stickier than than not doing it. You're, you're building a personal rapport, and it's a per, it's going back to kind of a personal shopper type relationship. So yeah. that really instills loyalty if you do it correctly. One other consideration, a big one, is just the footprint to the, the store layout would need to totally change. The real estate would need to be reevaluated. Doing this at scale, like you don't need the same size. It needs to be more more like a living room or or more lifestyle oriented. So really, everything ultimately would need to be rethought and reconfigured to do this at scale. But they have some time to test it out, and they kind of need to. So almost like you're walking into someone's living room and you can see it, you can visualize this new entertainment system more easily in your house or whatever it is. Um, do you think they might take a path like that where the store is divided into small sections? Like, is that what you're thinking? Something along those lines. Also, um, AR on top of it could be super interesting and also mm. a way to bridge, maybe even going to VR, um, kind of the, the e-commerce to the, the store experience. And you, you really utilize each channel for for what it could do best mm -hmm. so certain things could be done i think effectively layering on um an ar or maybe certain things virtually just will work and it would be enough to sell or make a transaction um, online but then ultimately certain things need to be experienced to hear the best quality speaker or, or or certain things that you just absolutely need to to experience that's when you you have these personal shoppers to take someone through it and make an appointment and who else better to do it than best buy with everything else that's happened uh, to retailers over the last decade, they bounced back, they made the right choices, and they're making the next innovative move here as well. So who better than an electronics firm you know, to be able to pull this off with that level of technology? Maybe somebody comes in with their layout of their room, and they draft it out and put VR and show them how it looks. It's unique, but that experience has to be unique. Otherwise, I think if it's just one-on-one -on -one only, everybody can copy it. So it's not just Best Buy that has an advantage, but if Best Buy leverages technology, like Elon says, then all of a sudden you've got, uh, you've got a great play model. Are there other categories where this would fit well, aside from electronics? Uh, you know, restaurants could use it. <laughs> kind of, they need a lot of help. I think there are opportunities. Furniture stores definitely could play it out that way. Appliance stores, but you know, Best Buy dabbles in that, although I don't think they should. It's just stick to the electronics the, that they're doing. But there may be some, you know, in terms of the overall service, yes. You know what, small boutique stores, to me, definitely, right? There's an opportunity there. When it mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, you know, just you've got such a small footprint to deal with. Personalizing it gives you that advantage of being able to close a sale and mm -hmm. bringing customers in, you know. And that way, you're not just dealing with browsers then you're dealing with customers who are actually looking to buy. That's an important uh, step advantage that you can create. I agree. And especially fashion uh, definitely could be done, especially at the higher end, the kind of higher the AOV, the, the more conducive. But if you look at what Reformation has done with their stores, you really can make appointments, really spend time, 
helping someone shop and, and also understanding what they don't want to speak to someone about, understanding their size, kind of the, the whole magic mirror um, bit, and then giving them a, a real elevated luxury experience um, in the stores or a lot of the men's brands doing it on the men's side in terms of clubhouses or, or different terminology of a, essentially a, it's a bit of a showroom uh, with, with personal shopper interlaid on top of it. So a lot of the digitally native brands have been kind of doing it as they've opened up physical manifestations. And so I think it's reevaluating it, um, but, but doing it for everybody. You know, the only other point on this is that cost, right? Uh, and the price that the consumer is willing to pay for this level of service. Because if you're dealing, again, you get the social distancing piece that you have to play with, and depending on the square footage of the, of the location, Best Buy may be able to get away with it because of their current space, but a lot of other retailers can't. So you're minimized in terms of how many customers you can deal with at one time. So you need to drive that transaction because if you're dealing with less traffic, is it your experience and your product line and your service good enough to pay more for it? That's going to be a big challenge because if you're just working on the same average sale and low transactions that you currently have, it's great as a conversion tool. But if it's not growing your revenue in this environment, it may not be any better. And I was speaking with a couple of retailers. I know top of mind for them when it comes to reopening the stores is how do we make it feel somewhat normal again? Perhaps this is one of the solutions because you don't go in and see a bunch of people wearing masks with a gate at the door for how many people can be let in at a time and things like that. Are there other ways you think retailers could make it feel like closer to normal? You know, there is one way. It's an ethical issue though. And, and it becomes down to, if we believe that anybody who's had the virus is indeed immune, and can't spread it, then hiring or just scheduling people who've already had it becomes an easier way to make things normal in the store, at least halfway normal. And I know it's being discussed with different governments uh, offering to provide employees with a certificate or a card that they've had the virus. You know, it's an ethical issue, right? It becomes an HR issue. It becomes a human rights issue. But you know, if you're looking for that to make it that simpler environment that the public feels more comfortable in, that's one way to do it. I'm not quite convinced it's uh, it's the right choice, <laughs> but it is. Uh, I know it's being kicked around. I think the other issue is the definition of normal. I think that changes, and I, and I think that there'll be permanent change to that. So safety and cleanliness will be top of mind, I think, for a very, very long time. And I think it becomes incumbent on retailers to make it clear that the environment is safe and clean. And you've got to communicate that in a very, very clear and non-threatening way to the customer. And I think that that becomes a new normal. And so that just has to be incorporated, I think, into things for the foreseeable future. I agree with you 100%. But the challenge for the retailer is depending on how much merchandise you're displaying and what kind of retailer you are, as those browsers or shoppers come in and touch things, right? How quickly can you clean, right? And sanitize things. I, I think that's such a, such a challenge as well. And it's not your employees that have touched it. It's your customers who are touching things. Yeah, completely. And I've been thinking a lot about this and, and then just reading too, but you can go to kind of crazy extremes or, or crazy might not be the right word because they may it might be reality, um, but clothing, for example, like you have disposable clothes that could be used for sizing and you don't let anyone touch anything else and you have touchless payout and like it, things, it, it could be done. It really could be done um, 
it would just require an inordinate amount of change. This is a time classically of innovation when things are really ugly. And if you look back historically, some of the most innovative companies are really born at, at this time. So I am confident that the minds uh, in, in this country, in this industry and beyond uh, globally will come up with interesting solutions to, to, to really address everything. Absolutely. I've seen the memes going around Facebook, Pinterest, all of those companies we know and love were developed during the recession around 2008. So I think there's hope. George, Elon, thank you both for joining today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.